You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 422, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Gemma Israff. Hey, Gemma, how are you doing? I am doing well. I love summer. It's my favorite season. So excited that that's starting. See, I love that for you because it is my most hated season. (laughs) (laughs) I always joke I'm going to run away to Canada, just the very top of Canada, so that I can just live in winter wonderland for as long as possible. What do you hate about summer? Oh, I don't like to sweat. I don't like the sun. (laughs) I'm a vampire, Gemma. (laughs) I love the sun. Can you run in the hot weather? I go early in the morning. Running is the hard part of summer. You can't run in the middle of the day. It's a lot of sweat. Speaking of sweat, I'm just coming back from CrossFit. And you know the rule that if you do CrossFit and you don't tell anybody that you did CrossFit, then you didn't do CrossFit. (laughs) (laughs) We are currently recording over Zoom and I am clearly very sweaty, but luckily you don't have to deal with it. (laughs) And it's nice to get it done early in the day for sure. Nice. Yeah. It's important. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Just a lot going on at work and just coming off of RailsConf. The front end team just came back from a conference in Atlanta. This is the first time we've sent the front end team to a React conference. The first day was an absolute disaster, completely disorganized, really, really busy. But it seemed like they got their act together later in the week. But it was good that we actually sent the front end team. We typically send our teams to RubyConf, RailsConf but I've been trying to invest more into finding resources for them as well. Nice. So I thought it would be really fun to talk about a topic that your manager and I had chatted about. You should definitely listen to that episode. We will link it up in the show notes. But I am absolutely fascinated with how Ruby itself progresses. I feel like Ruby on Rails is pretty clear. You can see how that works within GitHub. You can see the pull requests open, the issues open. We're just coming off of RailsConf where we had an actual discussion from Eileen about getting more contributors in. But to me, Ruby itself has always been a black box. And I know that's something you work on, Gemma. So I'd love to talk about the proposal that you opened and just like that whole process and how that works. If you could kind of gear this for people who are brand new to the whole process, I think it would be awesome. I think what throws people off initially is that it's not all on GitHub. Rails is, I think, all on GitHub. Like you write proposals on GitHub, you make issues on GitHub, you write PRs on GitHub. Ruby has the site bugs.rubylang.org or rubylang.org, but within bugs.rubylang.org, folks can file bug reports for any like issues they see or feature requests or feature proposals. So that happens outside of GitHub. And then Ruby Ruby, like the Ruby code base is still on GitHub, but that's actually mirrored. It's hosted on rubylang.org as well. And the GitHub version is a mirror of that. And then within that ecosystem, you have the, I think, pretty standard. There's a core team who has commit bit. They can merge PRs. But where the conversations really happen are on that bugs.rubylang.org. And that's where folks will go to say, hey, I have this proposal for a new feature and anyone can chime in there. And then people on Ruby core can give their opinion or input or like, this looks good. This is missing this. Have you thought about this kind of questions? And so that's where the discussion really happens. That's so interesting. Now, is it bad form to just try to make a code change to the Ruby language without opening an issue and getting buy-in first? 
I don't know that I would say bad form. I think it's unlikely if it's a big change or a feature change or something like that. I don't think Ruby core members would approve and merge it without a clear proposal and a clear like this is what's going on in, in a place where there was a discussion of a feature. It's not how that team really operates. That makes sense. Now, how much are you straddling between having to communicate in English versus Japanese? Oh, I don't speak any Japanese. So <laughs> yeah, I think most folks on Ruby Core have some English impressively. So the proposals on that bug's Ruby Lang website can be in English, I think often are. Yeah, I do. For folks who speak only Japanese and aren't listening to this podcast, obviously, I don't know what they do there. We actually do have some listenership in Japan and I've always wondered. So if you are a listener listening from Japan, first of all, thank you so much. Please tweet at us because that is incredibly cool and we really appreciate your listenership. Yeah, I know when Ruby Core has their meetings, their like Ruby Core team meetings, those are in Japanese and not in English. Gotcha. Well, I want to talk about the proposal that you opened, which first of all, Gemma, is just so incredibly well-written. I'm just like really excited about what you're proposing. Would you mind sharing with the listeners what your proposal is about? Thank you. Yeah, I've been working with Aaron Patterson and Eileen Bushitelli on an implementation of object shapes in CRuby. So object shapes is an older idea that we are looking to put into Ruby that really helps with instance variable caching and quick access to instance variables. I hope that give some talks about it in the fall. If all goes well, I'm going to give a talk actually at Brighton Ruby about how instance variable caching currently works. And so I've been working on that a bit and wrote a proposal for it. The project is still under development, but we wanted to put the proposal in to just hear if there was any blocking feedback or anything. We should really keep in mind while we're working on it from the Ruby core team. So we can link it from show notes, but that's up at bugsrubylang.org. And listeners can definitely take a look if you're curious. You can see some folks asked questions and gave feedback on the proposal itself. Do you know of any other languages that currently use object shapes that you can point to and say like it's been successful there? Because it sounds like to your point, like it, it is a familiar concept. Yes. So Truffle Ruby, a different Ruby implementation actually already uses this. V8 also uses it. Originated from the self language, which is a descendant of Smalltalk. Those are some examples of where it's used in the wild already. Smalltalk has been on my bucket list. I know that Abdi Grimm is like a huge proponent of Smalltalk. And I believe like he might have been doing Smalltalk before Ruby. And so it's always been on my bucket list because I always hear such great things about it. Such great things that I always wonder why it's not one of the common languages that we use now. But I don't really know its use case. So it's something that I've always wanted to dig into. If any listeners out there are familiar with Smalltalk and use it regularly, like I'd love to talk to you. Is it still maintained? I have no idea. It feels like almost a fable within the Ruby community. I definitely know a lot of origins in Ruby are from Smalltalk, but I didn't know if it was one of those languages that faded into the abyss. But yeah, we wanted to talk about open source more generally too on this episode. And I think that's maybe an interesting segue there of like how folks maintain things, how, yeah, how in this case, I guess, languages disappear or dissolve into other languages. What's it been like for you where your main job at Shopify is to work on open source? Has that been like a real shift for you? Yeah, it's the first job I've had that has been that. But I've been thinking a lot about, I was actually listening back to the podcast panel episode we recorded at RailsConf and there was 
quite a bit of conversation about open source. And I've been thinking a lot about what it means to be like my salary is basically going to open source and most of the people on my team in some way. And it obviously we're working in ways that are really useful for Shopify and we're testing against Shopify and and we're doing things there, but thinking about how I think Andrew Culver made a point on the podcast panel around paying folks to do open source work. And I wanted to, yeah, what are your thoughts on kind of, I think Andrew Culver made a point on the podcast panel around paying folks to do open source work. What are your thoughts on kind of free labor and open source or paying people and things there? Well, you asked me at a really good time because right now I'm the leader for the WMB.RB book club. And we're currently reading Working in Public, which is a fantastic book. It's written by Nadia Eggball. And so we'll link that up in the show notes. It's been really refreshing to read a technical book that doesn't have any code in it. And while the whole point of the book is talking about how we can make open source work and what it's like to work in public. So I feel like this is a good time to talk about this Gemma just because I've been noodling it over a lot. I think it's a really romantic idea that open source can be maintained by people being paid. But I have seen too many people in our community work at companies where they're hired on to work on open source and then eventually that's deprecated and they need to find somewhere else to go. I totally believe that Shopify is bought into working towards Ruby and Rails and we see a lot of the contributors working there and I'm very grateful to them. But there is so much open source out there. And the one that really strikes a chord with me is how many different jobs the creator of Curl has worked at. He was paid by Mozilla. He's been paid by different companies in order to maintain Curl. And meanwhile, Curl is incredibly important to many companies. And it just, it still feels like We don't have the infrastructure and the non-technical people don't understand how important open source is to their businesses. What do you think? I wish I'd been able to see Eileen's talk at RailsConf. My impression was she talked about this quite a bit about how a lot of open source is part of the stacks that companies are using and they don't treat it like that. And I think it's interesting in a way, I think Andrew Culver at the podcast panel made a point of Companies should be giving $50,000 or something like that to open source developers. I think what's interesting there is companies for the most part that are using open source software are already paying developers, already have developers on staff whose professional development they are invested in. And working on open source is such a good way to do that. And like you're already paying folks for their time. Why not have part of that time be working on open source instead of or maybe even in addition to giving the money directly to open source developers. I think that's interesting. Honey Badger is exception, uptime, and cron monitoring all in one place and easily installed in your web app. Deploy with confidence and be your team's DevOps hero. I want to tell you about another awesome feature from our friends at Honey Badger. Have you ever wanted to update all your errors at once or set defaults for incoming errors? With Honey Badger Actions, you can do just that and a lot more. Actions come in two flavors, project actions and batch actions. With project actions, you can automatically assign errors to yourself or another team member, add tags to specific error classes, and more. Batch actions are similar to project actions, but they can be applied to search results in the errors list. To dive into all things actions, head on over to honeybadger.io. Do you think the ideal situation is that companies are actually employing developers to work on open source? Or would you rather like to see that companies have a budget 
it's not like necessarily paying a license, but if I want to use Ruby on Rails or I want to use Ruby, I'm paying into a fund, possibly Ruby together, and they are hiring people to work on it. What's the ideal situation? I think it's hard for me to talk in a blanket way like that because obviously there's some scrappier startups that don't have the funds for things like that. I think for companies that are a little more mature and that have the funds, I think actually you can make a really good case for making time for the developers you already have on staff to do work on open source projects and have that be the way that your company is contributing to the the tools you're using and also just ensuring the longevity and success of the tools that they're using, right? It's incentives I think are and should be aligned there. I wonder if there's a way to easily generate by looking at your code base, is there a way to easily generate like a visualization of all the open source libraries that you're using? So that way you can present that to non-technical stakeholders so they understand To me, Gemma, the only time that most non-technical stakeholders think about open source is when there's a security flaw, which is a bummer. We're not celebrating new releases. We're not celebrating new functionality that's getting merged in. It might be revealed once a new feature goes out, but very rarely do we say like, hey, I was able to do this really cool streaming feature because Action Cable made it possible. There's just not that transparency. And to most people, They think the developers that are on staff are writing all this code from scratch. And so you don't want it to be like these people are cutting and copying open source because that's not the case. A lot of custom code is getting written, but there needs to be more transparency about how important open source is to a lot of these businesses success. Yeah, I guess the gemfile.log has a lot of information on what all is being used, at least in the Ruby world. I think that is a good point. I think it's also probably on developers to advocate a little more and to demonstrate exactly what's going on and what all technology they're using. We did a tree shaking exercise on the front end. I had never done tree shaking. I didn't even know what that meant, but that essentially means like, can you shake the tree? What fruit falls out and what can we eliminate? What are we not using? And so our front end lead ran a static analysis across our front end so we could see a visualization of all the JavaScript libraries we were using. And granted, after reading Working in Public, and I think we're all very aware, like the JavaScript dependency ecosystem is huge. People are using so many things, so many tiny little packages. The whole left pad incident wouldn't have happened if that wasn't the case. But it was kind of wild to see how many different libraries were being used for something that you might think is relatively a small lift. And I think, too, that people also forget that dependencies have dependencies. We see that a lot where we take things for granted because we aren't directly installing them. I think that's really true. I also have been thinking recently about, I don't know if this is in my mind or in reality, but there's a bit of a trope around open source maintainers or folks who work on open source saying they don't get paid for that work or saying they're doing it just for free or as volunteer time. And I think sometimes it is, but oftentimes it's not. I've been thinking a lot about how oftentimes If you're the maintainer or the face of a gem or a library or something, you, I don't know, you might get good consulting business out of that, or you're giving talks from that and that's generating business for you or job opportunities or things. And you might not be being paid directly, but I think a lot of the time folks who are working on open source are already being compensated in some way for their work. At least folks who are working on it in a maintainer capacity or things like that. And the folks who aren't really compensated for it are the people often who are doing like one-off tickets or one-off things in their free time. Do you have thoughts there? 
Yeah, I'm actually fascinated by the amount of people that we see within our community that are not writing Ruby by day, but they're involved in the Ruby and Rails communities by night. And I am really impressed by that because I think it's really difficult nowadays to be able to hold two things like that going, to stay, you know, on top of two different communities. And so I definitely comes to mind with just the program committee at RailsConf. A lot of the people on the program committee are not writing Ruby every day, but they still deeply care about the ecosystem and they want to push it forward. I don't think it's okay to say, well, this person's being paid for this job, so they're able to do this job for free. That's not going to fly. Yeah, no. And it really makes me think of the founder of Closure. We read in Working in Public that he's very against Closure being a community effort. He doesn't want to deal with that. And so closure was something that he built that he loves and he doesn't allow the community to make any decisions around it. And in that regard, it keeps him interested in it and he can stay protected against having this massive like maintainership. Is that the right move for closure overall? Probably not. It's probably going to limit its adoption. Is it going to prevent closure from dying? Probably so. So it's all about what the goal of the framework of the library is. I don't know the specifics around closure, but I would assume this man, like most people, is mortal. And at some point with him, closure would die under this unless he has some sort of succession planning. I agree with you, Gemma. But in some ways, I almost wonder, is it okay if closure dies? In some ways, I almost want to see things pop up like closure where we get really good ideas and then we take those ideas and we put them into the libraries that are being maintained. So like if closure is doing something around like object shapes that is really smart, borrowing that idea and bringing into Ruby where there is this like community building and people are actually being paid to like write open source would be ideal. I think we need more things that are not going to be permanent forever because we're just racking up so much technical debt around all these open source libraries that we need to maintain. At some point, we need to have some sort of convergence. But I mean, obviously, we don't want to get to a point where there's no diversification. I think it's also it's a pretty big risk to have something like closure dependent on only one person in terms of, I don't know, we talk about lottery numbers or bus numbers or however you want to phrase it, right? If you won the lottery one day and no longer wanted to work on this, what would happen to everyone's code? And I think this was in Working in Public or around the time you all started reading Working in Public, but if maintainers just take gems down or take libraries down, what happens there? And that right. whole conversation. There's no ramification. It's their property. And yeah. so I very controversially, NPM restored all the left prad library when that got yanked down. And the question was whether or not NPM had the right to do that because it technically right. is it their property. And I think that's a good argument for core teams or for many folks who are have ownership responsibility over a framework or a library or a language or whatever it may be. Well, then my question for you, Gemma, is like, when is your project relevant enough? When's it making enough impact that you need to have a core team? To me, I feel like Closure doesn't have the adoption rate at this point where you would need to have a core team. It's a relatively household name. I don't know many companies that are running it in production. They might be. But like something like React, of course, would need to have a core team. Yeah, this is going to sound like a cop out or a silly answer, but I would imagine it's one of those things when I think even like with growth of WNB.RB, the women non-binary Ruby community, 
I think when we first started, we didn't need a board. We didn't know what it was. It wasn't a fully fledged organization. And now we're like learning, okay, we need a board and all this governance structure and things like that. Like clearly at this point to us, we're outgrowing our current governance structure. I would imagine it's something similar with closure or things like that. So I know you have an opinion on this, but like, how should people get started in open source? I have a feeling that you're against the drive-by pull request. <laughs> yeah. So I've been asking about this on Twitter recently. I'm pretty fascinated by this. And I think it's actually the fascination comes out of a mistake I made. I maintain a small gem called Memoize. It's a memoization gem. I think it's pretty neat. It's not widely adopted. We were thinking about oh, we have these issues. Should we label some of them good first time issues? Which GitHub has that little label you can attach to an issue. Good first issues. That's what the label is. There were one or two that we labeled that way that retrospectively are not good first issues. They're just issues like documentation changes or our change log has different tenses and it's really inconsistent. Like good first issue, clean this up. And that's not like, (laughs) I think that was a big mistake. No one that I know of has picked up that issue, but I don't think it's a good first issue. It's gotten me thinking a lot about what is a good first issue. And when people go to the issues tab on GitHub of some open source repo they want to contribute to, what is that motivation and what are they actually looking for there? Yeah. What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I agree with you because the whole point of getting people involved in open source is that you want them to feel some sort of ownership and that they come back. The worst thing is to have a drive-by pull request. They don't care about your project at all. They're just trying to rack up open source credit. That's not the point here. We want to create more maintainers who care about the project. I mean, really, to be fair, the incident that happened this past weekend with Epic Games where a person who came to make very silly changes to a readme accidentally pinged 400,000 people within the Epic Games organization. Uh, kudos to GitHub for handling all that traffic because every single time somebody responded, that was another 400,000 emails that went out. But to your point, I think that in an ideal situation is that a core member of the team pairs with someone who is interested on a project and they work on an intermediate problem together. Now, I would have the person who's interested in maintaining, I would have them drive. So that way they get familiar with the code base. But I think that's going to lead to better relationships because there's just too many dependencies out there that need maintainers. And I don't know, I would feel more comfortable if I had a friendlier introduction to a project as opposed to just grabbing a readme documentation PR. This episode is also brought to you by Scout APM. Scout is an industry leader in application performance monitoring. This low overhead tool is designed to help Ruby developers find and fix performance issues. Scout's intuitive UI and tracing logic ties bottlenecks to specific lines of code and allows you to quickly pinpoint and resolve issues like N plus one queries, slow database queries, memory bloat, and more. Scout's unlimited seats and applications allow teams to collaborate without additional costs and makes it easy for any member of your team to become a performance pro. See for yourself why developers worldwide call Scout their best friend with a free 14-day trial, no credit card needed. As a special offer for Ruby on Rails listeners, Scout will donate $5 to the open source project of your choice when you deploy. Learn more at scoutapm.com slash rubyonrails. 
I'm not convinced that the goal necessarily is for everyone to become maintainers either. The time of the core team is also a valuable resource. I love that approach in so many ways. It also makes me think of like January 1st, when everyone says they're going to the gym every day and three days later, like 10% of folks are still going to the gym or something, right? Of how many people will come to a repo and I want to really work to become a maintainer and then just won't. And I don't think that needs to be the solution either. I think it's great to have folks who are just like, I saw this bug in Rails or in Ruby or in whatever, and just dropping by to fix the bug that I saw and am affected by, and then we'll continue on doing my thing. I think that's a really reasonable contribution and a helpful one to everyone. See, I'm glad you pushed me that way because you are right. I want to add a clarification. We need to be better open source citizens. So if you find yourself forking a project, fixing it, and then keeping it to yourself, that's not being a good open source citizen. And so while it might be more tedious to open the pull request, to finish the test, to document why you want that merged in, yeah, it's a pain, but it's better. It's going to help us going forward. And so I think we see that a lot where people just get frustrated with maintainer decisions or they get frustrated with the speed that maintainers are responding to issues and pull requests. And so they just fork it. And then we end up with a mess because then I don't know which gem to download. I don't know which one I should be looking at. Now I have a gem file that's pointed at GitHub repos and that always just feels dirty. Yeah, that does always feel dirty. There's a lot in what you said that I want to respond to. I think one is what's the onus on the maintainer in terms of response time or things like that. And the other part I wanted to talk about was different roles that folks can play in the open source community. I think there are a lot of people within Ruby community who have written about this, about different roles that people can have in open source, whether it's maintainer or triage or contributor or things like that. What do you think about the Rails core team turning off bots? So that way we're not like auto closing issues and not like auto posting messages on the pull request. Do you think that's the right move or should we be leaning heavy into automation? I don't know. I'm obviously not on Rails core and I would imagine they know and feel that pain a little more. I think it's a tough line. I've definitely been on the side of, I wrote a pull request to an open source repo that isn't super active and just waiting. And then months later, when it's way out of your mind, hearing something back is tough. It's like, what are you supposed to do as the contributor in that point? If you needed it for your job or for whatever you're working on, your best solution was likely to fork it. But also it's totally reasonable for a small project and a single maintainer for someone to just not look at that very often. And so what is the real solution there? I don't know. What if we had a system where you could offer a tip for somebody to read the pull request where the the company is incentivizing? I mean, I'm being a little controversial here, but like money talks. So yeah, yeah. There was a system for that where it's almost like requesting a karaoke song and just slipping a 20 in there so you can get a little, <laughs> a little earlier in line. Yeah. So I think one reason people push back against that is a company paying for an open source repo to be driven in the direction that they need or want or something like that. And where's the line there? And it gets complicated, but it it goes back to our early conversation about folks are already being compensated for open source work. And then sometimes folks are like, oh, I don't want to open up uh, GitHub. I don't know what you can do, GitHub sponsorship or things like that on repos. But you're already personally profiting from that work in some way, whether you're being explicit about it or not. Yeah, I don't know. 
I think that's the problem though, Gemma, is that some people benefit from being a maintainer of a repo. Like they already get their big headline on Hacker News and it's over. The joy is over. It's almost like pre-announcing that you're going to run a marathon before you actually run the marathon. And so you get all the joy and the accolades, but now it's over. And so it's the question of whether or not the maintainer is deriving any value anymore from what they've put out there, because maybe now it's just debt that's now being weighed on them. So if there's something that you can do in order to help them, that's ideal. And I can't think of anything that is more succinct than money. I'm sure there's other ways to help maintainers out there. But like I said, money talks. Yeah, I would imagine Robbie Russell has a lot to say on this topic. I know he cares quite a bit about building maintainable software. But I think even talking about that memoization jam, I wrote it when I was working at a company that needed it for a pretty specific use case. And after I left the company, I worked with some co-maintainers on it still for a little while. But now it's like pretty far removed from what I'm actively working on. I still obviously know the code base, but that'll dissipate with time. And like, what is the solution there? Really? I don't know. Has your last job taken over maintainership at all? Yeah. So it's under their name, the gem, but similarly, it's one person there who's really driving it. And if he moves on to a different job or a different company, or also maybe loses interest, he's on parental leave right now, for instance, what happens with that? I don't know the answers there. No, I don't know either. And you're right. It's only about time. The next version of Rails will come out. Maybe it won't work with that. The next Ruby version might come out. Maybe it won't work with that. There's just so much to think about. And I think what's really irritating, Gemma, is that you have no idea who's depending on it. You happen to know one company that's completely dependent on it. But unless people tell you overtly, you have no idea. I know that there's the feature on GitHub where you can see what open source projects are using a dependency. But you can't see if I'm installed your memoization gem at Texas. Like that's completely, you know, hidden from you. Right. That maybe gets to accountability a little too, right? Like if Shopify tomorrow went completely offline, they couldn't do that. They have contracts in place. They have people actively paying them through their contracts. They have a ton of accountability. Whereas this little memoization gem has none, right? We have no contracts in place. We have nothing that says we'll continue maintaining this. We have no one paying us for it. And so it could yeah, just go completely offline with nothing. Agreed. Well, I always enjoy having these kinds of chats with you, Gemma. I just think that you are in a really unique position where you just see a lot of things that I don't. So I love talking about this kind of stuff. And I'm also, like I said at the top of the episode, super excited about your object shapes proposal. So we're going to link that all up all in the show notes. If you feel passionate about it, listeners, like please let Gemma know. And uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, keep doing all the great work that you do, Gemma. It's always great to chat. Thank you. Thanks. I've enjoyed this conversation too. Yeah. And hopefully I'll, I'll get to give some talks about object shapes and can properly explain it in that context. You've been listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening. <laughs>